Reading from Titus 2, in our survey of the Bible, we're going to take on this last of the pastoral epistles, Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Amen. Father, we thank you for this book and uh, the place that it has in uh, our lives. And I pray that you would help me to faithfully, clearly communicate uh, this message and uh, that you would enable each one of us to grow as a result of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just a reminder that the books of the English New Testament are not arranged in chronological order. Uh, they are arranged in topical order. So the chronologi chronological order of these pastoral epistles is 1 Timothy, then Titus, then 2 Timothy. So Titus was written after Acts 28, in other words, after the first Roman imprisonment, but it was written before the second Roman imprisonment uh, during the fourth missionary journey of Paul. And by now, Titus had been working with the Apostle Paul for almost 20 years, ever since he was converted by Paul's ministry in Acts 11, verse 26. Uh, Timothy and Titus appear to have been indispensable fellow workers with Paul. Both had the gift of evangelism. Both were involved in planting churches. And it appears that Paul really knew how to surround himself with competent men. Another interesting historical note is that uh, Galatians 2 verse 3 points out that Timothy uh, was the test case for the whole circumcision controversy. And because all of the apostles and elders had agreed, yes, he does not need to be circumcised, he is kind of the model for or the example of Gentile and Jew working side by side as being equals in the kingdom. Um, Titus had already been on uh, some super tough assignments before. He had been sent three times to Corinth to deal with problems, and I won't give you the references to that. After this book was written, in other words, after Titus was written, we find from 2 Timothy 4.10 that Titus had, as soon as he heard that Paul was in prison again, he had gone to Rome to help Paul out, but Paul sent him on uh, to uh, another assignment in Dalmatia. He valued Titus's ongoing ministry. He did not want to risk him staying there in Rome. Paul loved Titus dearly. He calls him Titus, my brother, in 2 Corinthians 2.13, my partner and fellow worker, 2 Corinthians 8.23, calls him my son in this epistle. Two chapters of 2 Corinthians, that's chapters 7 through 8, laud Titus's exemplary character and conduct. He was a leader's leader. He was a tremendous model of faithful service, and so the lack of leaders that we find in um, the island of Crete in Titus chapter 1 is not because he's a slouch of a worker. 
He was a tremendous, tremendous worker. He's just, these are providential hindrances that he was trying to work with. And this book of Titus describes a particularly difficult task that Paul had assigned to Titus. He was sent to the notorious island of Crete, the fourth largest island in the Mediterranean. Crete was well known for its lascivious ways where even the women preferred sleeping around to getting married. The men many times hired themselves out as mercenaries to the highest bidder. They were gone from home a lot of the time, and you can just imagine the lurid tales of some of these uh, sailors. Um, the pagan literature of that day thought of the Cretans as liars, immoral, unfaithful, untrustworthy, brutal, and some of the pagan uh, writers even called them uncivilized beasts. So it was a tough population to be planting churches in, and yet churches had sprung up all over Crete, a testimony to Titus's remarkable evangelistic skills. Now here was the problem. Because Crete had been evangelized but had not been able to find qualified leaders, informal leaders began to influence from two sources. There were respected pagan converts uh, who brought the Greek philosophy that they had bought into with them. And then there were Jewish converts who had brought some Phariseeism with them. And because of their worldly wisdom, they began to exert a huge negative influence. And I think it's a per point worth noting that no organization stays in a leadership vacuum. It's impossible. Okay? If there aren't formal leaders doing their job, there's always going to be somebody out there that's going to influence. And many problems began to arise because shepherds weren't shepherding. There were no shepherds. Okay, Titus was sent to try to fix what was broken because the church of Crete did not reflect well on Christ and his gospel. There was drunkenness, immorality, unfaithfulness in one segment of the church, and there is another segment of the church that was reacting against that, but in trying to deal with all of this immorality, they were imposing Pharisaic legalism, and uh, neither one was helpful at all. It was a mess. Neither the immoral people nor the legalists were using God's grace properly, and actually that was the worst part of the problem that the Christians were confused about the nature of grace. They were the classic example of what Virgil Walker calls the gracists. Gracists are people who talk about grace incessantly, but they don't seem to ever be transformed by that grace. Gracism is a plague on the modern church. And so if you look at the chiastic outline on the first uh, front of your, outline, uh, your handouts, you'll see that the heart of the chiastic structure is a correction of what grace is all about. This is such a needed correction for the modern church that has jettisoned God's law in the name of grace. So chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, teaches us the difference between counterfeit grace and true grace, but every point in this outline moves us toward that central theme. And we'll start with the two A sections, the introduction and the conclusion. Even the introduction to the book is a correction to what was happening in the church of Crete. In contrast to the pride of the false teachers, Paul in verse 1 calls himself a bond slave of Christ. He's a slave. And yes, he does call himself an apostle, but he's an apostle 
who can't speak his own word, the very definition of an apostle is somebody who's speaking Christ's interest, not his own interest. This is about the triune God, not about him. Instead of building up himself, Paul says that God's commission was to reach God's elect, to train God's elect in the truth, to change God's elect with a ministry that accords with godliness. And the whole book is going to evaluate ministries based on are they producing something that accords with godliness? Is it a ministry that accords with godliness? In contrast to the false hopes set out by these teachers, he appeals to a hope of eternal life given by God. In contrast to the lies being told, he appeals to the God who cannot lie. And that too is a corrective, a very needed corrective to our culture that is absolutely filled with lies. In contrast to their creative ideas, Paul appeals to, quote, our common faith. He wants them grounded in the old paths, not coming up with all kinds of new creative ideas. Instead of appealing to his own authority, he appeals to the objective commands of God. And then he does give the normal greetings of grace and peace that he gives in every uh, book. Uh, but he does it in a way that emphasizes the godliness that grace produces. If your version of grace is not producing godliness, it is not the grace of God. And so... Uh, chapter 3, verse 14 in the second A section, it says, And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. None of Paul's intros or conclusions are wasted words. They give a grace-centered perspective on the problems in each of those epistles. And in this case, it's highlighting the fact that grace is not antinomian. Antinomian means against the law of God. It is not antinomian at all. It leads to transformation. It is practical. Like James, in this book, Paul describes a grace with work boots on, okay? Now, in the 2B sections, Paul speaks of the critical need for good leaders who are characterized by that grace that transforms. And I find it interesting that Paul does not emphasize that we want elders who have a seminary degree, we want elders who are eggheads and can answer every question that is out there. No, he's emphasizing the character of these elders their character needs to be changed. They're not just decision makers, they are ministers. Verse 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, I think it's important that we deal with this background a little bit, because Timothy was a solo church planter. This is very unusual in the New Testament, very unusual. He had already planted a whole bunch of churches, but none of them had leaders. He had the powers of an evangelist, just like I did when I planted this church. But um, ordinarily, the ordination of elders was done by a group of elders, right? The ideal was to have churches planted by a team of elders, which Paul almost always did. But it was not always possible. Paul emphasized in his ministry planting churches in the big cross the most influential cities on the mainland and then those cities were responsible once the church was planting other churches eventually having a presbytery that radiated out from that city in this case it's crete uh, there was opportunities there because of believers who were already there but he sent titus there uh, for a rather unusual work of establishing uh, leaders in these uh, smaller groups throughout the uh, throughout the city. Now, though Zenos and Apollos delivered the message to Titus, they could not stay to help. I'm sure Titus would have loved for them to stick around for a while, 
Uh, and it can be very discouraging to have a church develop so slowly. How slowly did it take to develop elders in, in Crete? Well, if William Hendrickson is right, then it was 13 years later that Paul writes this letter. And they still didn't have ruling elders. The fastest range it could possibly be, as I've uh, looked at various commentators, is five to seven years, but that seems extremely unlikely. It's much more likely it was 13 years. Now, of course, there were Christians in Crete long before Paul even got there. If you look at Acts chapter 2, you will see that there were people, converts, who were from Crete, who went back to Crete. And what appears to have happened is that there were Bible studies scattered throughout that island, and they didn't have any good churches to go to. And sometimes they gathered in small Bible studies, sometimes they formed a church, and yet there were still no elders. Even in biblical times, it sometimes took a while to get leaders who met all of the biblical qualifications. This is something that cannot be rushed. And this lack of leadership resulted in problems. The Greek word for set in order was a word that was used by physicians to describe mending broken bones or fixing crooked limbs. Okay, and this term is used by Paul to imply that these churches have spiritual problems. They got broken limbs, so to speak, and they needed ruling elders to be physicians. Why? Wasn't Titus's preaching enough? You know, surely you might think if you got a great preacher like Titus preaching Sunday morning, maybe Sunday evening, maybe some, doing some teaching on Wednesdays, all that's going to be needed. And Paul said, no, the public preaching is not enough to set those bones. If it was, Titus would have been all that would uh, be needed to accomplish the task. And uh, you can look at the life of Christ and you'll see exactly the same balance. He engaged in public teaching, but it was not enough. And so he was also involved in personal discipleship of, interestingly, not very many people, 12 disciples. His public teaching wasn't enough. Now, I've over the years been amazed at how, at least I think my sermons are really, really clear, you know, on how to deal with some problem, and people don't get it. They need the one-on-one -on -one coaching and mentoring to get them over the, the obstacles and into righteousness. They need counseling, so to speak. Did you realize that Christ himself was amazed that people didn't get his teaching? Uh, he was the master teacher, and yet people still didn't get it. How many times did Jesus say, how is it you still do not understand? And so he supplemented his public teaching with one-on-one -on -one ministry, and if Christ had to do that, then you can know that Titus would have to do that as well. One of the books that has revolutionized, uh, this was back in the 70s, revolutionized my perspective on ministry was Robert Coleman's book. Um, what's the name of it, Gary? Um, Robert Coleman. Yes, Master Plan of Evangelism. Tremendous book showing how Christ uh, didn't just engage in the public ministry with the crowds, he spent time, quality time, with 12 men and uh, trained them to train others. And um, it's really a situation where there's one on one accountability and shepherding and coaching to get them past the obstacles and into uh, righteousness. So verse 5 clearly shows that discipleship cannot happen by Titus's preaching alone, nor can Titus disciple hundreds of people. It's impossible. Jesus didn't disciple more than 12. Christ trained the leaders, the leaders trained others, and that's my vision of eldership. Now actually all of verses 5 through 16 shows that there could be no substitute for personal shepherding. Anytime that there are new believers, they're going to bring a lot of baggage with them. 
long-standing sinful habits and patterns that the elders will help to fix. And as we go through this book, you're going to see Crete had an unusually high number of problems infecting the church in Crete because they had been without elders for so long, probably 13 years. They had gotten into sinful patterns that would not have happened if they had had elders fulfilling their godly roles. And so verse 5 commands Titus, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now I'm not going to deal one by one with all of the qualifications in there. Instead I'm going to give you a high level view, dividing up all of those qualifications into four kinds of qualifications. And um, we'll, we'll cover each one. First of all, there were qualifications of role. And in this chapter, elders had three roles. They had the role of elder, of overseer, that's the literal meaning of the word bishop, and of steward. Let's look at the word elder first. An elder should be an example of maturity and leadership. After all, the word elder does mean older. Uh, it's one of the reasons, one of many reasons, why we believe that the minimum age for entering into eldership was age of 30. I mean, even Jesus didn't enter into the ministry until he was 30 years of age. And so there's the role qualification of an elder. Next, there is the role qualification of a bishop, or literally an overseer. An overseer should have administrative and supervisory skills. Okay, that's what the word bishop means. But I want you to notice the way this is worded. All of the elders are bishops, and all of the bishops are elders. Okay, they're not two different offices. They're just different roles for the same office. The next role is as a steward. A steward has a responsibility for handling the Word of God and the sacraments in the way that God uh, dictates. So those three words, I think, pretty much cover the roles of the elders. Second, there are seven domestic or community qualifications. He must be blameless, meaning that nobody can bring a legitimate. They might bring a charge against him, but they can't bring a legitimate charge against him. He must be a man who is married, faithful to one woman, with children, able to manage his household, and with children old enough that those children's characters uh, can be discerned. So the family is both the training ground and the proving ground uh, for eldering. So there are qualifications of role, qualifications of community. Third, there are 13 personal character qualifications. Why would he give so many character qualifications? Well, I think all you have to do is look at elders who have fallen over the last 30 years in America. Almost all of these elders, and there are a ton of them, have fallen because of weaknesses in their character. Let me list those character qualifications for, me, for you. An elder must be blameless, have a steward's heart, not be self-willed, not quick-tempered, doesn't drink too much, is not violent or pugnacious, not greedy, hospitable, lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, and self-controlled. Now, super easy to read that. <laughs> much more difficult to live it. Uh, fourth, there are doctrinal qualifications. Um, the man must be able to demonstrate that he is doctrinally sound, and secondly, must be able to prove those doctrines to those who oppose, to the, uh, to the heretics. Uh, so he, he has to be able to debate, debate and convince. Verse 9 says, Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. 
So every elder needs to be able to meet all four of those qualification categories. Uh, pray that God would raise up such elders in our midst. And that segues into the two C sections. The ministry of leaders is to connect people with Christ and His grace in ways that helps them to overcome their sins and be brought into wholeness. And wow, what an array of sins and messed up lives you see in those two C sections. Both C sections show that where true grace and gospel of Jesus has been embraced, change should be evident. So why was there sin in Crete? Why was there divisiveness, false doctrine, Judaizing legalism? Well, it was because of the influence of false teachers. Verse 11 shows these false teachers had a negative influence upon entire households, so there was mentoring going on, discipleship into bad things going on. Verses 12 through 14 show the unbiblical sources of authority that these false teachers used. Verses 15 through 16 show the character issues that arise when people do not live by Scripture alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. You, you miss those three solas of the Reformation and of the Bible. <laughs> Obviously, it's in the Bible. Uh, you're going to have a messed up life. Now, I want to deal with who these, these uh, false teachers were. Most people believe it was not one set of teachers. It was two kinds of false teacher in Crete. There were teachers who were influenced by the pagan Greek philosophy of Epimenides. And then there were Jewish teachers who looked to Jewish man-made traditions of the rabbis for their authority. And Paul says neither one had a leg to stand on, neither one was characterized by the transformational grace that this book speaks to. Now Paul starts with the Greek philosophy influence. Epimenides was a brilliant philosopher from 600 years before. He was revered by the Cretans because he was a Cretan. And he was revered by the other Greek philosophers because he really was a brilliant man. But Paul very easily, presuppositionally, exposes the fallacy of this Greek philosopher's entire empirical philosophy by quoting him. Just quoting one phrase uh, that really in a nutshell shows everything wrong, that is wrong with empiricism. This is, by the way, very famous amongst uh, uh, philosophers to this day. It's the paradox of Epimenides. Epimenides had said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now the paradox, you'll see it in most uh, philosophy textbooks, the paradox is if Cretans are always liars and if Epimenides is a Cretan, then Epimenides lied when he said that Cretans are always liars. You logically have only two options if you buy into this pagan's philosophy and neither one works. Either Epimenides always lied and could not be trusted, or his maxim that Cretans always lie was a lie and he could not be trusted, but you cannot trust him either way. Okay, so um, basically... His entire philosophy is disposed of. Here's the problem. Based on his human philosophy, it would be impossible to be able to say logically that every Cretan always does anything based on counting noses. Uh, it would take omniscience to make any universal affirmation, and his philosophy was full of universal affirmations. No one but God, an omniscient being, could make such a declaration. But God, through Paul, makes exactly that statement. He discounts the philosophy of Epimenides by saying, yeah, Cretans are indeed always liars. That's verse 13. This testimony is true. 
Now, he is not endorsing the philosophy of Epimenides. He is just saying that particular statement is true. He was using the well-known self-reputing paradox of their, their favorite um, philosopher to demonstrate without divine revelation from God, you cannot make any universal statement, but hey, God can. As God said elsewhere through Paul, let God be true and every man a liar. Now, you and your pride might not think you have ever lied. That's a lie. <laughs> because the scripture says that we all go astray even from birth speaking lies. Your babies start speaking lies. Every one of us is liars, and grace takes us away from lying and into truth-telling uh, more and more. But um, by counting noses of Cretans, you can never arrive at a valid induction of what is true of all Cretans, and therefore empiricists like Epimenides can never know the truth. So Epimenides is a liar in philosophy and methodology because his whole underlying philosophy is, is false. Now, I'm not going to get into this anymore, but it's a brilliant, brilliant apologetic that Paul uses. Read Gordon Clark's exposition of this. I think you'll be impressed. Anyway, Paul goes on to refute the second set of bad influencers in exactly the same way since they too have thrown out sola scriptura. You're on shaky ground when you do that. The Jewish teachers made the same mistake by failing to found everything upon the Word of God alone. For them, it was always the Bible plus tradition. And where the two came into contradiction, tradition was primary, just like it is with the Roman Catholics of today. Verse 14 says, Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. What is the truth? Well, it's the Bible. The Bible says to God alone, your word is truth. Not your word is true. If you say God's word is true, then you're implying your mind is the judge of Scripture or something outside of the Bible is a higher authority by which the Bible is judged. No, he says your word is truth. It is the judge of all truth statements that are out there. It is the only source of infallible truth. And the most you can call your teaching is fables and commandments of men if you do not found it upon the Bible. By their works you will know them. The lifestyle of these Jewish teachers lacked grace, was not founded on God's word, was not done to God's glory. And then Paul says, it's useless. Verses 15 through 16. To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now this is such a rebuke to the modern church that sees science and sociology and other disciplines as being their source of truth. The church has abandoned the Reformation cry of sola scriptura, and Paul says they're disqualified. There is a sense in which they are no better than the converted Greek philosophers who trusted Greek philosophy more than the Bible. The Jews trusted their traditions more than the Bible. So in the second C section, he says much the same. I'll just read a couple verses, verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject the device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, if you read the Talmud, uh, you will find 
their discussions of the law to be exactly what Paul says. It's this rabbi says such and such, but this rabbi says something different, and this rabbi, their you know, thesis, antithesis, some new synthesis that comes out of that. It's wranglings about the law, and Paul says, forget all of those strivings about the law. Read the law itself. Don't read the Talmud. That's basically what Paul uh, was saying. These false teachers were obviously not embracing grace themselves, and their disciples were obviously not being transformed by grace. Now, I'll just won't say any more about that, but I think the modern church really needs to delve deeply into those two C sections. Very, very important corrections on a massive scale. The two D sections deal with doctrines related to authority and submission in relationships. And these, I think these two sections are needed by the modern church as well. It's so infected with egalitarianism. The modern church refuses to submit to the Bible's role relationships. And they are not sola scriptura, and their views of grace completely undermine what the Bible says. Now, I can only give you a few hints. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 shows how we adorn the gospel well, so there's the grace, the gospel, when we stick to the biblical role relationships that God has established in the home and the business. And people might say, why? Why would that be? Uh, why would that follow? We bring great discredit to the gospel when our homes and businesses don't look much different than the pagans' homes and businesses. Well, that sort of implies that the gospel ought to change the way that you run your home and the way that you run your business. He's asking, where's the evidence of grace? One of the tests of whether you're really living by grace is whether you honor the authority relationships of God's Word. Well, that doesn't speak very well of 21st century church at all, which has become egalitarian. The second D section does much the same thing, but this time with civics. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, shows how we adorn the gospel well when we are subject to rulers and authorities in the civil sphere, but we deny the gospel when our civic lives are just like the world's. It's really an amazing section for Christians to read when they are in civics. Is God's grace impacting our civics? Remember that the heart of this book, every section in it, is moving toward the transforming grace of God. Now before we tackle the heart of the book, I do want to comment on the safeguards, methods, and goals of mature men discipling younger men and mature women discipling younger women in these two D sections. First of all, the safeguards. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Godliness cannot be achieved apart from biblical doctrine, and there are various words in verses 2, 3, 5, 7, 8, and 10 that reemphasize exactly the same point. Those who are not doctrinally grounded themselves are going to mess up automatically in their discipleship. You do not want doctrinally unsound older women discipling your younger women. Why? Because their bad doctrine will impact their life, whether they realize it or not. Paul's older women or mature women who are doing the discipleship must be, quote, sound in the faith, verse 2. Must know the word of God, verse 5. The mature men should hold to their doctrines with integrity, verse 7. Even the master-slave relationship must, quote, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things, in verse 10. So doctrine is the first safeguard. The second safeguard is grace, a true view of grace. So our discipleship needs to come out of lives transformed by grace 
and impart grace to the hearer. Now, because I'm going to be focusing uh, a good chunk of my time on the center of the book, I won't deal with it now, but it's in there. What about the methods of discipleship? I can't go into great detail, but what the mature men and mature women are doing here is working themselves out of a job. This is backwards to modern discipleship programs that are there for perpetuity. If you study this chapter, you'll notice that Titus himself is training dads to train their children, to train their own children, and their grandkids to train their children, right? And Titus is having, since it's not, wouldn't be appropriate for Titus to be discipling the women, Titus is having mature women training moms to train other women? No. The mature women are training the moms to train their daughters. Why? Well, when new converts come to Christ, nobody's trained them. So they're going to be training their daughters in bad habits if they don't have someone showing them the ropes. So this is really remedial training for the messed up converts of Crete. It is not ongoing women's programs. They were on an as-needed basis when moms were not able to do that themselves and where dads were not doing an adequate job of training their sons. But at the same time, I think parents should feel free to ask other potential mentors to mentor them or mentor their wives or mentor their kids in a slice of life that they are not competent in to do themselves. Chapter 2 showcases beautifully two complementary methods of discipleship. First way is modeling or imitation. You're modeling your successes in the people that you are discipling, and hopefully you're not reproducing too many of your own failures. Many of the things listed in this chapter can only happen when you're spending a great deal of time together, see lifestyle being demonstrated, you give homework, you delegate responsibilities, you got accountability, feedback, and support. Now sadly, the false teachers were doing exactly this with their disciples. They were discipling people of their bad habits, but good disciples uh, disciplers needed to replace the bad ones. So modeling is the first method. The second method you see in chapter 2 is speaking what needs to be done. Paul uses five Greek words to highlight the various facets of this speaking part of discipleship. Actually, if you look at the back of your outlines, I've listed all five for you there. So first, there's the Greek word laleo, which just means talk. Talk about things. You're sharing what has helped you, what's hindered you. It's translated as speak in verses 1 and 15. And really, most people can engage in this first level of discipleship quite easily. Um, you do it when you're sitting at the tables. You know, you're talking, you're sharing, you're being as iron sharpening iron. And everybody in the church should do that. And I've actually put these out of order. The third word is actually something everybody can engage in as well. Uh, it's sofranizo, which means encouraging, urging, advising, and that occurs in verses 4, 6, and 12. So everybody in the congregation ought to be able to encourage and urge and advise. Uh, the second word in your list uh, is only for those really who are qualified. It's didaskalia, which means discipling. There is some authority of passing on of your life in it, discipling, teaching, instruction. Much more systematic, much more formal than the first one. And you see that word in verses 1, 7, and 10. So women can talk with men. They can share with men. That's no problem. That's the first word and the third word. But women are forbidden from discipling men. That's this second word. 
And actually, it's not a very good idea for men to be discipling women either, is it? It's, it's great if the women are doing that discipleship. Fourth word is parakaleo, which means to come alongside of a person to coach them. In fact, coaching is really the word you could put in there. Coaching, encouraging, exhorting. Uh, that word occurs in verses 6 and 15, and some people are particularly gifted at coaching. It's very, very important in a mentoring process. The fifth word is elenko, which means to scrutinize, analyze, rebuke, and correct. And that word occurs in chapter 1, verses 9 and 13, and then one time, chapter 2, verse 15. This is needed when you're troubleshooting. Why is it that people are not having a success? You'd think that they would have had a breakthrough at this point. Nothing superficial about it. It's very analytical in dissecting the problem, coming up with a solution, and it takes a great deal of counseling. I'm thrilled that the, the foxes and the duffs are getting this kind of, of counseling training on an ongoing basis. Now, here's the thing. You look at those five words, well, at least three of those five, it takes a lot of trust to be involved in that. You don't just randomly put people together to disciple each other. You look for a person whom you believe, I want to be like that person. I really, that person has excelled above me at least one or two areas of life, and I want to ask that person to mentor me in those things. By the way, even pastors, I think, should do this kind of thing. Every year I have tried to look for another pastor uh, who can mentor me in some area, and usually they're very, very intimidated. And I said, well, just let me ask you questions. Let's get together once a month, and I'm going to ask you questions. But it's gotten harder and harder to find people locally. But I've had pastors right here in Omaha from totally different persuasions who have been fantastic in certain areas. Like one pastor, he trained me in uh, administration. And there was another pastor who, uh, that I learned from. He actually was the guy that did this life mapping for me. And it was probably one of the most uh, helpful exercises that I have ever gone through in really understanding my call that God has put upon my life and uh, helping me to get a mission statement and see what God has been crafting me for in the previous 45 years. So you can see that was a, a while ago that that happened. Um, even pastors who were intimidated didn't want to teach me anything passed on qualities of sharpening my use of spiritual gifts, organizing my time better. And I really would urge the families of this church to make good use of the resources of other people within this congregation. Who knows, maybe outside the congregation you'll find somebody that could help. I also want to point out the kinds of things being taught here. This is not justification for lay conferences. This is one-on-one -on -one mentorship and discipleship in very practical areas of living. For example, he mentions mature women teaching younger women how to love their husbands, how to love their children. Now, what young woman doesn't think she's already doing a great job in loving her husband, loving her children? But, you know, the mature women who have been through a lot in life can recognize some of the weak spots that these younger women are not recognizing, can invest in their lives and say, look, don't repeat the same mistakes that I've made. Here's some things that you can do to really grow in, in this area of your life. And all of the other things mentioned here, they're one-on-one -on -one training. They are not conferences. I believe that husbands should be very involved in encouraging their wives and their daughters to seek out specific women for specific kinds of mentoring. So those two D sections have a lot of practical advice on discipleship that will adorn the gospel, help people to have a good testimony to all. 
Not only are elders and deacons needed, each member of the church really is needed to be involved in ministry if we're to all grow in grace. And that's where I want to end this sermon. It's on that central section, the true nature of grace that is the heart of the chiasm. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. We live in an age where there is a great deal of ignorance about grace. And you might think, what? <laughs> that's all I hear about is people talking about grace, transforming grace. But I'll just give you a few hints as to why I think there's a lack of understanding of grace uh, in the church of today. On the one hand, there are people who confuse grace with works righteousness. You can see that with the World Evangelical Alliance's coziness with Rome. You can see it in other, other groups. On the other hand, there are evangelicals who think somehow grace is contrary to the law, and if you've got any law-keeping whatsoever, you don't have grace. They fail to remember it took Christ's law-keeping to provide grace, and grace is designed to transform our lives, to help us to live out God's law. Some think grace is only needed for conversion. That's justification. But then they spend the rest of their lives trying very hard to live out their Christianity. And Galatians 3 says, that's so foolish. You can't begin with grace and then continue in your flesh. You have to have grace all the way through. Others define grace in a way where you would think, God doesn't really care about your sin. Yeah, that's nonsense. Others think that grace can be completely lost every time you sin, and so they're getting justified, getting born again, supposedly, over and over again. There's no stability in their lives when they have that kind of a viewpoint. So what we're going to do here is we're going to let this scripture teach us what grace um, teaches. Verse 12 says, grace teaches us something. First, we see in verse 11 that the school of grace opens our eyes to the only way of salvation. We totally misunderstand grace if we think we can somehow earn, deserve, or even contribute in some small way to God's favor. And I want to break down the verse uh, word by word. The word grace is a word that simply means God's undeserved favor. The word salvation implies we were lost, we're deserving of hell. But I want you to notice the order in which God's favor comes. Verse 11 says, for the grace of God that brings salvation. So the first thing we need to notice is that God's undeserved favor, His grace, came upon us before we were saved. Otherwise, grace wouldn't be bringing salvation, right? So it's before we're saved. If God had favor on us before we were saved, then that means that God's favor came upon us before we were changed, before we were converted, before we had anything good in us. And that, in turn, means there's nothing in us that contributed to God's favor. This is why we define grace as undeserved favor. God's favor began in eternity past when he elected us before the foundation of the world, and that eternal undeserved favor brought every aspect of our salvation into being. Scripture says we were born again by grace. We believe by grace. We're converted by grace, understand by grace, are sanctified by grace. We persevere by grace. Every aspect of salvation flows from God's prior favor. Verse 12 says that grace teaches us next to be sanctified. Grace is, quote, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now, if verse 11 deals with the beginning of our walk, our regeneration, justification, this is dealing with the ongoing walk of our growth in holiness. And this sanctifying grace has both a negative and a positive side. It's a very imperative we have both. 
First grace is against something. It stands in opposition to something. It denies something. Some translate it, it says no to something. Or as William Hendrickson translated, it renounces something. Verse 12 says that true grace denies or renounces or says no to what? To ungodliness and worldly lusts. And if your grace is not working in you to the denying of ungodliness and worldly lusts, then it's a counterfeit grace. If it doesn't stand against anything, it is a counterfeit grace. Now, obviously, we have to repeatedly say no and renounce these works of the flesh, but there must be some standing against those works of the flesh. Second, it stands for righteousness. But again, there's an order. Until you stand against something, you can't stand for something. Here's what it stands for, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now, the word soberly is the word for rationality, and we see that, uh, that word used in verses 2, 4, and 6. And I love the fact that Paul wants us to be rational. We have been saved to be rational. So God, God's grace teaches us to use our head. But unfortunately, there's a common notion of grace that you find that if you're spiritual, you're going to believe in contradictions. And Paul says, no, God's grace teaches us to be rational. Uh, I have met people who believe that barking for Jesus and slithering around on the floor is a sign of spirituality and revival. And Paul says, no, grace teaches us that we should live rationally. Some people believe if you haven't had irrational experiences, you've not been baptized in the Spirit. And Paul says, no, grace teaches us we should live rationally. Some say they're allergic to theology, and all God wants is our hearts. And I, I quote uh, from Christ where he says, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Okay, so that's a pretty important lesson of grace. The next thing that grace teaches us is that we should live righteously. Any conception of grace that says, hey, you can sin because you're covered, you're, you're, you're in grace. Uh, sin that grace may abound, it's a false and heretical view of grace. Paul says that true grace teaches us to live righteously. God is interested in righteousness. He's interested in how we live. Not only is it compatible with grace, righteousness always flows from grace. You're not even saved if you're not beginning to live righteously. The next word deals with a life devoted to God, that we should live godly. Now, some have translated that as devoted to God, right? Grace stirs up the heart to seek after God, to commune with God, to have a life that is completely wrapped up in God. And so God doesn't just want an intellectual Christianity. He wants all of us. Grace makes us totally devoted to God, and devotions and worship is one of the awesome fruits of grace. There's one more phrase in verse 12. All of this is to be in this present age. Well, that's encouraging. That implies it's possible to be rational and righteous and devoted to God in this present age. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven. In fact, we don't have an option of waiting till we get to heaven, as the carnal Christian theory thinks we do. No. Grace teaches us we are to live this way in the present age. Literally, it's in the now age. And to me, it's very encouraging. You can overcome. But the interesting thing about grace is that it does this gradually, not suddenly. The word for teaching us is from the same stem as pedagogue, and Hendrickson points out that a pedagogue leads children step by step. 
And grace, too, gently but firmly and consistently leads and guides us forward. We're not going to get there overnight. We grow in grace gradually. And so any form of perfectionism that says a Christian can live perfectly or above known sin is wrong. Grace is a pedagogue that gradually, gently leads us along, teaching us principle upon principle of how to live. Now there's a third point that I see in verse 13. Verse 13 is continuing the sentence that begins with what God's grace is training us in. And the third major point is that the school of grace teaches us to be driven by the future. Verse 13 says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, one interesting thing to notice is that Jesus is clearly called God there. But notice, too, that grace causes us to look to the future. It is future-oriented. All of history is heading toward a goal, and grace is part of God's process of achieving that goal, of reversing everything that got messed up by Adam's fall into sin. Too many people are driven by past failures. Well, this calls us to be driven by God's future for us and for planet Earth. Fourth, the school of grace teaches us to have a zeal for God's law. Now, for many modern Christians, this is the most surprising lesson of grace because they've been taught the exact opposite. The moment you're saved, you ignore the law. But look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. And I want you to notice the purpose phrase in this verse, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Three things I want to highlight from that phrase. First, if we're redeemed from lawless deeds, that means redemption doesn't just save us from hell. It also saves us from our sinful actions themselves, and that's exactly what the angel told Joseph before the incarnation. Matthew 121, he said, the whole purpose of Christ coming into the world is for he shall save his people from their sins. You have not learned the lessons of grace. If you think salvation is a free ticket to heaven, and then you can live like the devil, live however you want, and no, God did not send Christ to die for our sins to make us comfortable in our sins. He died to save us from our sins and to make us law-abiding. Second, notice that sin is defined by the law. We are redeemed from every lawless deed. Very interesting. 1 John 3, 4 defines sin this way. Sin, all sin is lawlessness. All sin. This means that sin is anything that is against the moral law of God. Sin is not some nebulous bad thing that has no relevance to Old Testament moral law. Sin is lawlessness, and Hebrews 1.9 says that Jesus hates lawlessness. Let me read that for you. Hebrews 1.9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. What does that say about Christians who throw out the law of God? Jesus, I believe, will say to them, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, that's Matthew 7, 23. You can read it for yourself. Now, obviously, God continues to be interested in the law, and those who resist the law are resisting God's whole purpose for sending Jesus. They are ignorant of the lessons of grace. You have not learned the lessons of grace very well if your version of grace teaches you to ignore the law. This is what Virgil Walker means when he talks about these unbiblical gracists. True grace is antithetical to lawlessness. Grace enables us to keep what we could not keep in our own strength. And third, I want you to notice how comprehensive this affirmation of the law is. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every 
lawless deed. Any deed that could be described as against the law of God is a deed that grace was designed to rescue us from. The whole law and every disobedience to the law is what is in view. This means that grace teaches us to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. Uh, by the way, even though this is referring to the moral law of God, Matthew 4, 4 is indicating every word of Scripture we can live by. How do you live by the ceremonial law that we're not under? Well, by following the mathematical principles that are in there. You know, your mathematics is grounded in there. The, your health, uh, science. I mean, there's so many things that we can live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 to 19. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I think failing to learn from grace has been extremely costly to our present generation. Their faulty views of grace have caused people to throw out the law and to oppose teachers, teachers who uphold the law. It's very sad, and it's destroying the family, the church, and our whole nation. I blame the church for the mess that our nation is currently in because we have failed to be salt and light in our nation. But Paul insists true grace teaches us to flee from lawlessness. Next, God's grace purifies or cleanses us. Now, you may feel discouraged and dirty because Nobody can keep the law perfectly, the moral law, right? And it's the moral law in view here. But you can go to the cross, you can ask for his forgiveness, he makes you white as snow, and you can bask once again in God's favor. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Next, grace purifies you for himself. What's the purpose of purification and forgiveness? It's not just to make us feel better, it's not a psychological concept, it's to draw us closer to God. That's what it's designed. Make God close to you, you close to God. Next, God is making you to be his own special people. Now, the word special is a very interesting word. Dictionary defines it as, quote, being beyond the usual. Being beyond the usual. In other words, you cannot be the status quo of what the world says is normal. I love the book written by a friend of mine, unquoting the status quo or something like that. Uh, Jesus is redeeming you to be beyond the usual. You cannot measure what is normal by the world or even by the church. Grace makes us radically different, and it makes us different for him. It makes us step into the realm of the supernatural. I've mentioned many times that the Sermon on the Mount is filled with commands that no unregenerate person can keep. You know, the Pharisees said, oh yeah, I love, I love my neighbor, my wife, my children. And Jesus said, that's nothing. Anybody can do that. But when you can love your enemies, when you can love those who persecute you, ah, that's an evidence that supernatural, you are beyond the usual. When you can rejoice under persecution, by God's grace, you've gone beyond. Next, grace teaches us to be zealous for good works. True grace burns within us. It yearns for action. It must be released in action. Wherever true grace is, these characteristics are always present, which means Many in the church are not even saved. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21 and following. There are going to be many on the last day of judgment say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and done all these wonderful works in your name? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So this whole verse is a rebuke 
to the modern church. Ignorance of what grace is all about has been costly. It has left the church in America in a messy shambles, and we need to pray. God would reverse that, pour out his grace upon the church in great measure. And who knows? The Lord might use the remnant uh, in America to start bringing about a reformation. The last lesson of grace is that we should never stop learning and never stop spreading this glorious message of grace. Verse 15 says, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Human flesh may rise up and despise this message, but grace within us makes us attracted to the message. And Titus as a pastor is admonished to never stop preaching the true grace of Jesus Christ, to never stop opposing the counterfeits that have been messing up the church of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is the message of Titus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book, a powerful little book, but I pray it would have a huge impact upon the church of Jesus Christ. You would open up the eyes of people who thus far have been blinded to the claims of grace upon our lives and help each one of us uh, when we recognize that you have given your all to us to give our all to you. Father, transform us. Transform us with your word. Transform us with this book of Titus. We pray in Jesus' name.